Hundreds of Indigenous women murdered or missing in Canada. A haunting national disgrace with no solution in sight. After exhaustive research that looks back across six decades, CBC News has launched today a database over 200 murdered and missing Indigenous women. There have been repeated calls for a public inquiry to look at this issue, but an RCMP report last year didn't even identify the women. 1,203. That's how many Indigenous women and girls were reported missing to the FBI in 2021. But tens of thousands of people are reported missing or murdered every year in the U.S., and people of color don't get nearly the same level of attention, particularly Indigenous and Native Americans. Native women are murdered at rates 10 times the national average, a pattern that's reflected in a report. The disappearance of Native American women in the U.S. is a crisis that's been ignored for decades. Welcome to The Dark Divide, a podcast that takes a seat, dangles its legs over the edge, and stares into the abyss. This is the story of Abigail Andrews. The life of Abigail Andrews had taken many unexpected twists and turns in order to land her in Fort St. John, British Columbia. You might not have guessed right away that this 28-year-old woman in the middle of a small city had seen much of the world, already lived a few lives, and had as many stories to tell as someone twice her age. Abigail had grown up familiar with the harsh landscape of northern BC. Much of her childhood was spent in Tetsa River, growing up at their family-run lodge, it was a simple life, lots of nature, lots of outdoor adventure, and sometimes a lot of work. She was the eldest of four children, responsible and no stranger to a good list of chores. But she found it satisfying to help out around the lodge, boasting its world's best cinnamon buns on signs approaching. Abigail would eventually be privy to the recipe, and years later would whip up surprise batches for friends on occasion. The Tetsa River Lodge, also known as Cinnamon Bun Center of the Galactic Cluster, ran off of generator power. After lights out, Abigail would spend her evenings curled up under a pile of blankets, a book in one hand and a flashlight in the other. She would see the words become vivid scenery in her head, hear voices for the characters. Her imagination would crawl out from beneath the roof of her cabin, through the airwaves and into a sea of sky. She'd dream of airplanes and city lights taking her far away. It wasn't that she didn't love her life there. It was just that she felt an undeniable yearning to see every part of the world that she could. Abigail flourished into a deep-thinking and independent woman, whose charisma matched her striking features. She stood six feet tall with long, dark hair, her hazel eyes dreamy and wide against her light complexion, always framed with one of her many pairs of earrings. Her childhood love of mythology and adventure carried into her adult personality, making her an ambitious dreamer with an eclectic style. Abigail was Métis, and life along the Alaskan Highway had given her an abundance of knowledge when it came to Aboriginal culture. The intentionality and connectivity of her Indigenous roots nurtured a keen awareness of community and spirituality in her that stayed. She loved searching for symbolism in her favorite song lyrics or pointing out synchronicities to friends. She was vivacious, laughing deeply, loving hard, so easy to be yourself with. She made fast friends everywhere she went, and her absence was always felt when she would move. 
but life itself was a work of art to Abigail, and if she could think it up, she could make it happen. She flew across the ocean and spent time in the UK, wandering her way through tiny villages and spending hours in museums. When she returned to Canada, lit up from the change of scenery and charm of travel, she decided to move to Montreal. While she was there, she invited a childhood friend to be her roommate, who had just given birth to her son and was separated from her partner. Abigail spent a year and a half supporting her in every way that she could, essentially helping her raise him until they got their own place. That was just the kind of friend that she was. Eventually, homesickness would be enough to bring Abigail closer to her family. After a few years of the East Coast in a city of nearly two million, she went to Fort St. John, a northeastern city in BC of around 20,000 people. It felt good to be with family again. And when Abigail discovered she was unexpectedly pregnant, she knew that close to home was the best place to be. And just because this baby wasn't planned for didn't mean that Abigail loved it any less. Being a mother had always been right around the top of her list of dreams. Her experience in Montreal, as well as many years of helping her parents raise her siblings, had already shaped her into a natural. She was attentive and energized by children. They reflected back to her that innocent joy of youth that she had always been so determined to hold on to within herself. Working two jobs, one at a retail shop named FSJ Fashions, and one at the Frontier Bar and Grill, she immediately started putting every penny away that she could for the baby. Whatever she didn't save, she spent on adorable outfits. Oh my gosh, mom, look how tiny these socks are. Look at the little onesies, she'd squeal before tossing it all in the cart. A brand new chapter was about to begin for Abigail, and she couldn't wait. The last time anyone would hear from Abigail was April 7th, 2010. Close to 7 p.m., she called her mother. They spoke almost on a daily basis, and that night, she mentioned heading out for a while to see a friend who lived a short walk away. Debbie Andrews told her daughter to have fun and asked her to call her or text when she got home. But Debbie didn't hear from Abigail that night. And after 36 hours, with no responses to text messages and all of her calls going unanswered, she filed a missing persons report on the morning of April 9th. Maybe in a different situation, someone of Abigail's age and with her sense of adventure could afford the right to go missing, but being pregnant made her much more vulnerable than the average 28-year-old woman, and Debbie knew instantly that something was wrong. It wasn't like Abigail to be out of touch at all. For her to just stop communicating was absolutely and totally out of character for, for Abigail. She was in contact with me all the time. She phoned me, I would say, pretty well every day. When an adult goes missing, you have to first cross out the possibility that they went missing of their own accord. But Abigail was a responsible tenant, employee, and daughter who wouldn't have just walked away from her entire life. She always left home with her cell phone and was seen carrying a purse, but no bank transactions or phone activity occurred after that call to her mother. And just two days before, she joined her parents for another baby shopping excursion. That's what haunted them the most, how much Abigail had been looking forward to the future. At a 2013 press conference, with still little to no leads, Debbie and Doug Andrews reminded the public of Abigail's disappearance, how much she was looking forward to being a mother, and most importantly, how much she meant to them. About two days before Abby disappeared, we were downtown, uh, shopping with her. We spent the whole day with her. She was uh, very excited about um, getting all this baby stuff. We went out and got a, 
you know, high chair, a stroller, a playpen, uh, teddy bears, clothes. She had pampers that she was stockpiling. She was stockpiling food, all kinds of garments and goodies uh, in preparation for the birth of this child. She was really excited about it, as were, were we. For us, she was, you know, our daughter. She was a person. She has value to to us and to other people, and we would like to know what has happened to her. So if anybody does have any knowledge of that, we would ask them to come and, and tell the police what they know, whatever it is, so that uh, they can uh, do what they need to do in order to find out what happened to our daughter. The only witness to ever come forward with details regarding Abigail was a neighbor she spoke to right after leaving her basement apartment that evening. The man, who happened to be her landlord's father-in-law, said that Abigail mentioned going to see a male friend who lived on 98th Avenue. There were also reports of a woman fitting Abigail's description being seen walking down 94th Avenue, making the short distance to 98th, and it seems likely that she made it to her destination, given that it was such a small walk, but there's no way to be certain. Shortly after Abigail was reported missing, the North Peace Search and Rescue would collaborate with the RCMP to search the North Peace landfill just outside of Fort St. John. Friends and family of Abigail held their breath while they learned that the BC Coroner Service and a forensic anthropologist had also joined the team. But by April 20th, the search had been completed, and if anything of evidentiary worth had been recovered, the RCMP kept those details to themselves. It isn't even clear what led them to search the landfill to begin with. Weeks would pass with no word or sign. Abigail's family waited helplessly, feeling like there was so little they could do, having been told by the RCMP that any searches they planned to organize would only interfere with the investigation. Finally, in June, they were able to execute a search for her, but by then, so much time had passed. They had no idea what to do or where to start. They searched whatever nature areas they could, spots around her apartment building, even places on the advice of a psychic, but nothing came of it. Abigail's Aunt Beth would also arrange to have her photograph and information on two billboards along the Alaska Highway. Thanks to donations and the pockets of various family members, thousands of dollars were raised in order to keep the billboards up for a year. Had the person who took Abigail driven by her face, hiding in plain sight? In October 2013... The RCMP would release a reenactment video of a woman dressed like Abigail leaving her apartment that day. The video shows a woman with dark, mid-length hair, wearing a white shirt and a dark vest with black pants underneath a black, mid-length belted trench coat. Seeing the movements in something like a reenactment can sometimes bring a person to life for more people, as well as possibly jog the memory for anyone who may have seen Abigail that day, even just briefly. What information may seem non-essential to one person could actually be vital for police, because the RCMP do have at least one suspect in mind, someone known to Abigail. But they're in need of evidentiary information. They shared this with the public, that they believe the person has spoken to other people about what happened. As with so many cases like Abigail's, someone knows something, and until then, the family continues to suffer in their own unknowing. According to Abigail's Aunt Beth, the father of Abigail's child, quote, wasn't as keen as Abigail and didn't want to be a part of their lives. She was hoping that through time and talking, he would come on board as far as being a part of the child's life. 
They weren't living together or even looking at having a relationship in the future, but she was hoping for a father for her child, Beth told a reporter. Some sources report that she was single at the time when she went missing, while others say that she was dating someone, possibly a man from out of town. Beyond what little authorities have shared and the stories that Abigail's family continues to share with the public, everything else is speculation. There were even rumors that Abigail was a party girl who hung out with the wrong crowd, but that wasn't the case at all. She was a responsible and hard worker who made time for her friends as best she could and kept in touch with her family regularly. Pregnant women in the United States die by homicide more often than they die of pregnancy-related causes, usually by a partner or ex-partner. In 2004, the Unborn Victims of Violence Act would recognize an embryo or fetus in utero as a legal victim, creating harsher punishments for crimes involving expectant mothers. However, Canada has not yet bridged that gap. Even though an independent poll found that 70% of Canadians support tougher penalties, the House of Commons voted down the Protection of Pregnant Women and Preborn Children Act in 2016. Also known as Cassie and Molly's Law, it seeks future and past justice for nearly 100 cases of murdered pregnant women in Canada who did not die alone, who died with a life source in their womb, like a hidden jewel taunting only the most deranged. If someone were to be charged for killing Abigail and her unborn baby, it would be a count of one, not two. Abigail was a young, pregnant Métis woman, which put her in the most vulnerable of statistical categories. MMIW, or Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, is a violent epidemic that also affects who the media finds interest in reporting on and how. Most details about Abigail that are available to the public are solely available because her family members keep her name in circulation, because they take every rare offer to tell her story and face the emotional burden of regularly updating people when they can on a Facebook memorial page. In a pile of headline after headline of the same sensational cases, women like Abigail are so often cast aside. But she was a real, living, breathing person. And nobody, not a single human being, just vanishes into thin air. The not knowing is a slow suffering for every person holding on for closure in the aftermath. And with burning bated breath, those who knew her best and miss her most wait for time to untie the knots of guilt. Until then, they continue sharing candid and beautiful memories of the girl who once peppered their lives with giggles and juicy gossip and the cheesiest lasagna you've ever had. At 28 years old, at the time of her disappearance, Abigail would now be 40, the mother of a 12-year-old child. On what would have been her 40th birthday, her sister wrote on Facebook, Happy 40th birthday. We would have a party today. Instead, we mourn. My heart hurts knowing that another year has passed and you are still not with us again and we still have no answers as to what happened to you. Your baby would be so big now. I often think of where life would have led you, where you would be, what you would see every day when you woke up. I think of all the conversations we would have had about our kids, how they would be great friends. I think of how you would have aged, the first signs of gray at your temples. You were robbed of so much and the person that did this to you just walked away with no justice served. We love you, dear girl. Always and forever. Welcome to The Dark Divide, a podcast that takes a seat, dangles its legs over the edge, and stares into the abyss, 
This is the story of Elaine Alouk. Fort McMurray boasts that it's the place where wander meets wonder. Rightfully so, it's a gem of just about everything Canada has to offer. This small area in northeastern Alberta has a population around 76,000, and that of course doesn't count the tons of tourists that seek out its mild summers and subarctic winters. There's hiking, camping, skiing, and the height of nature's luxury all around you. It's survived wildfires and floods, and remains a significant cornerstone of the Canadian economy. A small place with big bragging rights, and natural beauty as far as the eye can see. Most people may consider a place like Fort McMurray to be relatively calm compared to its nearby neighbor cities. But when Elaine Frida Aluk moved there as a child with her family in 1977, it was a complete culture shock for all of them. Coming from the simple life of Big Stone Cree First Nation, the Aluk family had known quieter days full of farm chores and caring for animals. Elaine was the baby in a family of 10 children, so naturally everyone was the most protective of her, and they all did their best to acclimate to new rules and new dangers. The knowledge that street smarts would keep them all alive was somehow instinctual. The fast pace of a booming oil industry had been well on its way in Alberta. Even in a place like Fort McMurray, status and image began to matter more as the economy flourished. The Aluk family did their best to maintain their culture and speak their language. Elaine's parents, as well as her older sisters, Janet and Louise, were all residential school survivors. Being essentially stripped of identity was a trauma that so few understood. Elaine's parents knew that living in the city was what would be best for their family's future but they were determined that it would not come at a cost of their culture. Elaine grew up to have four children of her own, as well as becoming extremely close with her sister's children. Whether you're a literal aunt or a female elder, aunties are important matriarchs in many indigenous families. They are the healers, the crafters, the meal makers, the tradition keepers, the teachers and mothers and caretakers. And as a natural protector, Elaine took care to make sure that her children, as well as her nieces and nephews, were seen and clean, well-fed and safe. She had grown particularly close with Louise's daughter, Gina, who knew all too well the mama bear side of her auntie Elaine. You know, I see your husband around here in Fort McMurray with other women when he's supposed to be working, Gina. I don't like him. Gina, who was pregnant with her fourth child at the time, didn't know what to do with this information. At first, it was just easier to be angry with the messenger. Her Auntie Elaine was tough, with an honest tongue that was quick to the point. And even if she meant well, Gina just couldn't take the stress of that right now. She hung up the phone on her aunt and continued to ignore her phone calls. That phone conversation happened in April 2004, and it would be the last time that Gina would hear Elaine's voice ever again. After trying to reach her repeatedly for weeks, Elaine's father reported her missing on May 27th. Through statements gathered during their investigation, the RCMP believed that she was last seen on Tuesday, May 11th, just outside of Fort McMurray, around the Tower Road area. A person who still has yet to be named was driving with Elaine and claims that she suddenly asked to be let out of the vehicle. The person pulled over, left Elaine there on the side of the road, and drove off. It's unclear how long they waited, but eventually they drove back to the place where they left her, and she wasn't there. The driver said that Elaine was wearing a black leather jacket, white running shoes, and had a short cast on her left arm from wrist to elbow that was healing from a break. Even though this was enough to apparently clear the driver of suspicion, 
The statement only creates more questions and confusion. Where did the driver come from and where were they headed to? Did Elaine ask to be let out or was she kicked out? If she asked to be let out, was it because she felt unsafe? Why would Elaine ask to be let out on the side of the road, in the middle of nowhere, with one good arm and no way to reach anybody? And why did the driver decide to come back to the area to look for her? How long had that been, and did they see any other vehicles traveling on Tower Road at the time? These questions are just the tip of the iceberg. And when it comes to the last time Elaine was seen, Janet Alec feels like the RCMP report has the wrong date. She remembers speaking to her sister on May 12th. It sticks out in her memory because it was the last night shift she had for the week and Elaine had called her. She mentioned she'd be driving past her place, so Janet asked her to stop in for a coffee, but Elaine said that she couldn't because she was driving with a friend and she didn't say who it was. Janet told her she only had one night shift left for the week, so they should plan some sister time that weekend. It leaves question of how these two separate statements between Janet Alook and the driver who last saw Elaine were compared. Gina heard rumors that her aunt had been seen last at the Boomtown Casino in Fort McMurray. But beyond that, there was little to nothing being spoken in such a small place where you'd think someone surely would know something. Everyone who knew Elaine is sure that she didn't just walk away from her life. Besides possibly being in a vulnerable state with her arm, she also didn't take anything with her. No ID, no makeup, no money, no clothing. At the time, she'd been working at a restaurant and talking about her desires to get her life more organized. She'd recently seen the end of another relationship and felt a strong sense of guilt about not being able to provide a typical family household for her children. Elaine didn't want to abandon her life. She wanted to improve it. Elaine has ties to several places, but wasn't the kind of person to just leave without saying a word. The Aluk family is extremely close-knit and keeps in touch regularly. It was clear from the get-go that something sinister had taken place. On June 24th, the RCMP would conduct a ground search of the Tower Road area. Search and rescue would comb through hundreds of miles, train service dogs doing their best to catch a scent, but nothing was discovered. There were similar searches conducted in 2004, 2005, 2008, and 2013. There were some clothing items recovered, but it's unclear if they're related in any way to Elaine's disappearance. Anytime human remains are found, her name is included in a database that searches for a match. And still, the Aluk family waits for any trace of their beloved sister, daughter, and aunt. They have also conducted their own personal searches over the years, and even just while living their day-to-day -day lives, find themselves scanning the bushes and roadsides for any sign. It was as if the wild emptiness had swallowed her up into a vanishing point with no return. The issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls is nothing short of a crisis. The RCMP would release a report finding nearly 1,200 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada, although the Native Women's Association of Canada estimates the number to be at least double that, which is still shy of the exact amount. Between 1997 and 2000 alone, homicide rates for Aboriginal women and girls were seven times higher than any other female victims. Slowly, this topic has become a much bigger discussion, finally getting the overdue focus that it deserves. Places like the notorious Highway of Tears between Prince George and Prince Rupert in British Columbia would bring to light a troubling pattern in the country's homicide rates. The long, haunting road has had a disproportionately higher number of Indigenous women's bodies recovered there. And notable cases such as pig farmer Robert Picton, a serial killer who was charged with the murders of 26 women, although he claimed it was really 49, would remain a perfect example of the systematic issues at play. It's thought that at least half of his victims are Aboriginal women. 
After Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper rejected calls for an inquiry into the issue on multiple occasions in 2015, illustrator Evan Mundy began a mission on his Twitter account to bring attention to more cases. After Harper claimed that the national inquiry wasn't really high on his radar, Mundy knew that he had to use his talent to bring fire to the cause. The federal government seems more concerned that retail prices for books or toys are slightly higher in Canada than the fact that thousands of Indigenous women have gone missing or been murdered. That's higher on their radar, Evan told the Toronto Star. Elaine would be the first woman that he drew, tagging Stephen Harper's Twitter handle in the photo. He planned to continue drawing the faces of these women every single day, bringing attention to names that unfortunately get little to none. Tracing over the pencil with determined black ink, Mundy manages to take a simple image and still make the contrast of their soul and very being undeniably present. There's almost an emotional element added through his anger right into Elaine's eyes, as if to say, don't I matter to you? And it's in all of these little and big ways that the MMIW movement has continued to inspire many ripple effects, such as police trainings, tribal and city council meetings, marches and protests, database creations, dedicated websites and podcasts, information collecting, and education. Elaine's disappearance also highlights the challenges of reservations and the isolating factors involved in living on one, such as a lack of transportation and means to get from one place to another. Often they don't have the same connections, infrastructure, or resources. Chronic underfunding means a lack of safety and livability strategies. And like so many MMIW cases, it shows the importance of acting quickly, following through on any viable leads possible, and believing family members when they report a loved one missing. Instead of asking why these women may take part in risky behaviors, such as hitchhiking, we need to ask why aren't there any other options available to them? There are still so many ways in which the gap of opportunity and quality of life for reservations can and must be bridged. Janet Aluk has had to fight for survival in a world that demands two versions of her. It's always a struggle to be Native, she said. It's like I'm living in two worlds, having to be two different versions to survive. I'd rather stick with my culture because I know my language, and that's what keeps us going. In my culture, there's a right person who will find her, and that's what I believe. So I'm waiting for that right person. And Louise strengthens her faith with smudge ceremonies, praying every day, and keeping Elaine's memory alive for her boys. Elaine's brother Wilbert also does his part, showing up to rallies and vigils, holding his sister's photograph up on Bristol board signs. He never stops looking for her, never stops thinking that maybe when the phone rings or the door opens, that somehow it'll be her. He'll ask her where she's been, tell her about how everyone never stopped looking. And in between those daydreams, he still coordinates searches and does his best to keep informed on the case. The very preposterous nature of Elaine's story showcases the lack of exposure, awareness, and dedication directed towards missing and murdered Indigenous women. We read tiny bits and pieces of their lives, usually supplied by the family who is desperate for any media coverage they can get. In our current world, true crime has hit another peak of interest, and there's often times where sensational cases can cause wannabe armchair detectives to ignore boundaries and red flags, literally and metaphorically go knocking on doors or sniffing out leads they feel authorities are blind to, sometimes causing more trouble than good with a fantastical vision of solving a case with nothing more to go on than a keen passion and a pile of rewatched documentaries. And yet, there are many corners of the true crime world that still remain mostly ignored. They aren't interesting enough, they aren't detailed enough, and often they don't represent an ideal victim. Yet it's the basic humanness of these women that leaves a mark. The ordinary elements of fixing what's broken within you as best you can, 
embracing circumstances and flourishing despite what's working against you, and how failure is just proof that at least you were trying in the first place. Their stories aren't perfect because their stories aren't finished. This is what it means to truly be taken, to be ripped from your half-built home, the stain of dusty rubble still carving out the lines in the palms of your hands. Their stories are a bitter reminder of what could have been, and the heavy sadness of too late. Elaine Frida Aluk was 35 years old when she went missing. She had black shoulder-length hair and usually wore it down and straight. She's 5 foot 3, around 135 pounds, with brown eyes and a scar on her lower back. She has ties to Edmonton, Grand Prairie, Anzac, Fort McMurray, and Fort Vermilion. Elaine Aluk did not just walk away from her life. Elaine Aluk did not want to disappear. And until they come bubbling to the surface, the answers remain unknown. One thing that is certain is that her spirit remains alive, never forgotten. Welcome to The Dark Divide, a podcast that takes a seat, dangles its legs over the edge, and stares into the abyss. This is the story of Caitlin Potts. Caitlin Brandy Potts was a happy child. One of seven, the second oldest of the girls in her family, she was responsible and helpful with a protective nature about her. She grew up in Pigeon Lake, Alberta, right in the thick of Canadian wilds, on a reserve partly governed by Samson Cree First Nation. Caitlin was adventurous and free-spirited, eventually becoming a girl guide who would get badge after badge effortlessly. She wasn't afraid to get dirty or try new things. Her mind was like an encyclopedia of random facts from all the books she'd read. She couldn't get enough of them. Whenever she had a chance, her nose was in one. Caitlin, her older sister Ashley, would always whisper out into the darkness of their bedroom, Turn off your light, it's time for bed. But Caitlin would just pull the covers over her head, devouring whatever she could, sometimes even just the dictionary. She'd impress everyone the next day using fancy words over dinner. Hey, Mama Bear, she would lovingly call her mother Priscilla. Can we try this exquisite recipe I found on the internet? I think it would be absolutely delectable. It was no surprise to anyone when she later became a regular name on the honor roll at her high school. But Caitlin's rush towards a bright future would come to a traumatic halt when all seven children were placed into foster care. Caitlin went from sharing a home with her siblings and a bedroom with Ashley, her sister and closest friend, to living in separate houses and only seeing each other at school. Nobody knew at the time, but the trauma of separation from her mother and siblings wouldn't stop there. Caitlin also went through abuse while she was in foster care. Having no sense of stability, feeling alone and helpless, she turned her fear and sadness inward and began to spiral into a dull ache of depression. She used drugs and alcohol to numb the pain and tried as best she could to compartmentalize the darkness of her history. And later, her romantic choices would also reflect her lack of self-esteem and codependency. Caitlin would start a relationship with a man named Jason, who would eventually be found guilty of assault with a weapon against her. She'd fled home to Priscilla, beaten up and terrified. Priscilla knew all too well the pain that she saw in her daughter's face. She begged Caitlin to see that this man wasn't just a bad match for her. He was downright dangerous. Not only that, but by this time, Caitlin was a mother now to a little boy and she deserved to put herself first so that she could be the best parent possible. After filing for a restraining order, 
She admitted herself to a three-month rehabilitation program in Calgary, determined to get clean and start fresh. The relationship Caitlin had with this man seems to be long and turbulent. For a while, Caitlin had been living with her sister Cody in Edmonton, but the last place that she lived before her disappearance was somewhere in Enderby, British Columbia, a move inspired by her boyfriend, who'd moved there a few months before she followed suit. Things had still been in a bit of a honeymoon phase then, and it wasn't until Caitlin was far away from friends and family did the abuse start to get worse. They would be on and off, on and off over the years with ups and downs, including police calls and arrests. Caitlin would call her sister Cody, hiding in the bathroom and crying that he was going to kick the door in. There were times that she'd escape to her sister's house, covered in bruises, but always returning to the promise of a change. From the outside looking in, so often it's difficult to understand how a victim could return to their abuser. But in the cycle of abuse, they don't even see their abuser as their abuser. They see the person that they love, someone who is always struggling, someone who has such a good reason as to why they messed up and how they'll do better, someone who claims to desperately need your love and your patience and your forgiveness, and this time was the last time. But it never is. During one major incident, he was finally arrested, and because she was living in his apartment with no friends or family nearby, Caitlin would end up in a women's shelter. Isolation is often a tactic used by abusers to maintain control and keep their victim from reaching out to a support system. But with distance from the toxic cycle, she was able to thrive no matter where she was. She started going back to school, working a job at Tim Hortons, and doing super well for herself. However, according to her sister, Caitlin went back to him a couple months later. The cycle continued until eventually Caitlin would file a restraining order and admit herself to treatment for substance abuse. The Calgary program had everyone seeing a huge change in her. Over the short span of three months, Caitlin had yet again done another 180 in her life. Whenever she was on her own and in a positive environment, she thrived beyond belief. She was glowing and growing. She found the strength to finally share her stories and open up to her mother about foster care and the abuse she suffered. Priscilla could unfortunately relate all too well, but she knew the importance of talking about these things and killing the silent shame that isn't yours to carry. And so her mother couldn't almost believe it when Caitlin confessed that she'd been in touch with her ex close to the end of her treatment. And it isn't a far stretch to assume that they stayed in touch after Caitlin graduated from the program. Caitlin wasn't stupid. Caitlin was emotionally intelligent and deeply empathetic. The trauma she'd experienced in her childhood made her finely attuned to what others around her were feeling and a need to make sure that they were okay. Plus, she felt like a totally different person when she was sober. And maybe if she was a different person, and he promised to be a different person, it could work somehow. When she returned to the Enderby area, they continued to be on again, off again for the next couple of months. On the morning of February 22nd, 2016, Caitlin messaged her younger sister on Facebook during another off-again period. She was upset over money that Jason owed her and had sent him a long text about it. Caitlin was always active on social media, especially Facebook, but that would be the last time that anyone would hear from her. Family and friends would attempt to reach her with no luck, and after a few days of Caitlin's roommate having seen no sign of her, they reported her missing to the police. On March 1st, the RCMP filed a missing persons report, but the RCMP website didn't post an official alert until March 21st, stating, The RCMP Major Crimes Unit is now assisting Vernon North Okanagan RCMP with the investigation of POTS. 
However, even though the police believe that Caitlin had never left the Okanagan area, they had no place to start in terms of searching. The beautiful wilds of British Columbia with its expansive mountains of thick forest and deep waters, without a lead, it would be impossible to know. A major break would come with the release of surveillance video of Caitlin on the day that she went missing. The footage shows her at the Orchard Place Mall in Kelowna at 1.30 p.m. that Sunday. The 13-second clip shows Caitlin entering the mall doors in light tan-colored pants with black winter boots, a three-quarter length black jacket with a hood, and a large light brown leather tote handbag. At the time of her disappearance, Caitlin was 5 foot 3, 150 pounds with brown eyes. Her hair is tied up in a ponytail with a light-colored scrunchie, and she immediately pulls out her white iPhone out of her pocket to look at it before she leaves the camera's view. But this wasn't exactly just a casual afternoon shopping trip. That mall was over 80 kilometers away, and Caitlin didn't own a vehicle, which meant she would have had to get a ride to the mall. When Caitlin enters, the first thing she does is pull out her iPhone out of her pocket, looking at the screen and tapping with her thumb. Was she checking a shopping list? Looking at her social media? It seems strange to be in such a rush to do either of those things considering she's barely through the entrance doors, or was she possibly in a hurry to text someone that she was meeting? Details leading up to Caitlin's disappearance are conflicting. Some reports say that Cody had known Caitlin was in Kelowna or heading to Kelowna, and she'd also told her that she found a ride to Calgary on the website Kijiji, which is a Canadian online classified service. She told Cody that she would for sure be going to Calgary that night. A friend, who in some reports is Caitlin's roommate, told the police that she'd also mentioned a trip to Calgary. So if Caitlin got a ride from a stranger who wanted to do her harm, why would they allow her to go into the mall alone after an hour in the car together? Or maybe she got a ride to Orchard Place from one person and met another rideshare driver at the mall? Calgary is only the first leg of the trip to her sister's place in Edmonton. What did she plan to do when she got to Calgary? Either way, if she was communicating to arrange rideshares, whether texting or calling them, it's hard to imagine there wouldn't be some sort of digital trail leading to that person or persons. Ultimately, authorities have no solid reason to believe that she ever left the area, or even any concrete proof that she was on her way to Calgary. Caitlin was one of five women who would go missing in the Okanagan area in a relatively short time, causing speculation that there could be connections to a serial killer. So far, the police have no reason to believe the cases have a link to each other, but the possibility remains very real. In 2017, Priscilla would get the chance to see her daughter again through more surveillance footage. As the wheels of justice can sometimes turn ever so slow, Jason's 2014 assault charge would finally play out in trial over a year after Caitlin's disappearance. On a street outside of a hotel at 2 in the morning, Priscilla watched her daughter get a beating that made her stomach turn. It was one thing to hear the stories, it was another to see the abuse play out on screen. It was animalistic. Jason was convicted of assault with a weapon, breaching a no-contact order, and depriving a person of their property. Naturally, Jason would meet any accusations of his involvement with utter disgust, explaining that he and Caitlin were never in a relationship. They'd only been intimate on a casual basis with her staying at his place sometimes, highlighting that she was working as an escort. It's difficult to imagine that it was Caitlin's escorting that brought her out on a 1 p.m. trip to the mall in sweatpants and a hoodie, but stranger things have happened. Either way, Jason has never offered participation of any kind in the search for Caitlin. The only actions he's taken in the case is to contact the media to dispute claims written about him, accuse Caitlin of false abuse reports to 911, and speak ill of her family. 
Some reports claim that Caitlin had actually been living with him at the time of her disappearance, but Jason says that isn't true. Because the RCMP released a statement 10 months later, saying that they believe her claims of going to Calgary are completely unsubstantiated, some wonder if Jason could have been the perfect person to know who to text and what to say in order to buy time. With little to no leads, speculation lurches out like an ivy maze. The reports are scattered, the details are contradictory, and the burden of journalism often falls on the victim's family themselves. In February 2021, five years after Caitlin's disappearance, Priscilla Potts would stand at Collie Road in Enderby, holding a sign plastered with photographs of her daughter, pleading for tips or answers in a video shared with the public on the RCMP YouTube channel. She refuses to stop searching, and she refuses to give up. It's Priscilla Potts. My daughter is Caitlin Brandy Potts. She went missing in Enderby, B.C. on February 22, 2016. Today marks five years since my daughter was last seen. Caitlin was goofy, loving, caring. She was a mother, a daughter. These past years have been the hardest years of my life. All I am left to do is wonder where my daughter may be. I have been fighting for five years for justice for Caitlin. I need to know what happened to my daughter. I need to know, I need the public's help. I know someone knows what happened to Caitlin and can lead us to finding her. I'm begging you, if you have any information to come forward, please contact the police or submit an anonymous tip to Crime Stoppers. We also set up emails for tips. Help me find my daughter. Please, and thank you. As with so many cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women, the known details are few and far between. Some women have their status updated from missing person to homicide, but not much else has been established. With Caitlin's case, who has been interviewed, or what evidence police may have, if there is any, has not been shared with the family or public. Even though the RCMP have declared that her disappearance isn't linked to the other cases of women who have also gone missing in the area, the pattern still leaves a lack of resolution and a fear in the air. With the new age of true crime meets the technological era, Priscilla has been able to find support through unexpected avenues like TikTok and Twitter. And through the help of a GoFundMe campaign, she was able to hire a private investigator to take a closer look at Caitlin's case. She cannot help but feel that her daughter has just become another statistic on a long list of unsolved cases. It's difficult to trust in the protection of the very justice system that she's felt so disregarded by. Still, she contacts the police for updates to no avail, and she watches the numbers of missing and murdered women grow. She sees the same story, Caitlin's story, over and over, with different names and different faces. Priscilla told a reporter, I'm not saying only Native women, but I think they have it much worse because of the genocide we suffered and are still suffering, and women of all races are still being targeted. Understanding intimate partner violence is especially complex when it comes to the unique experiences of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit women. It continues a history of violence already running through their veins, of generational trauma and suppression. These women face the highest rates of victimization of all population groups in Canada, especially spousal violence. They face structural and systematic realities, barriers of inaccessibility to resources, a valid mistrust of authority, and a myriad of other challenges that limit support. 
Statistics Canada found that more than six in ten Indigenous women report having been physically or sexually assaulted at some point in their life. Caitlin had grown up with a dormant warfare in her bones, ready to ignite at the first spark of her own trauma when she was separated from her family and abused. And this had created an ideal blueprint for continued abuse later on in life. For someone to come along and find the cracks in her foundation, cut Caitlin down to size until she was just a shadow of herself, convince her that she wasn't enough on her own. And so, even when Caitlin was finally able to put herself first long enough to gather some sober time under her belt and begin to build her own happiness, she was sure that things would still work out with him. Why? Because even bruised black and blue, a part of her truly believed she had been the problem, and now the problem was fixed. Commonly, the only question asked to victims is, why don't you leave? A victim-blaming misconception fueled by the notion that leaving makes the abuse stop. But ending the cycle of abuse can be the most dangerous and delicate time for victims. Not always, but often, there is a period of time when things revert back to a more calm honeymoon stage. This is when abusers turn manipulation and charisma on at an all-time high. Given the fact that Caitlin had been feeling good about herself for the first time in years, so positive about the future, maybe the love bombing and promises weren't working anymore. And the fact that Jason was one of the last people she'd communicated with, and that she wasn't happy with him, is significant. Or maybe her life overlapped into danger, and she became an unsuspecting target for the wrong person at the right time. And these are the knots to entangle in so many MMIW cases. They could be connected to each other, or they could be completely individual, because there's so many layers of possibility. Both theories, that it was Caitlin's abuser or a random stranger, are nearly equally valid, only further proving the risk factors involved with just being a woman who happens to be First Nations, which means sometimes you're just as likely to be hurt inside of your home as you are outside of it. Caitlin's son is a teenager now, old enough to understand the details, but still unable to process the brutality of a world cold enough to take the one who brought him into it with no rhyme or reason. Priscilla finds it bittersweet to teach him about his mother, who should be here to enjoy all of these small, seemingly insignificant moments of growing up. Ashley stands by Priscilla's side, keeping her sister's name in the media whenever she can, but finding some days nearly unbearable. Walking in this world without her sister is like a half seeking its whole, and she thinks about how Caitlin would have benefited so much from healing wounds through being a mother, through starting a family, Every holiday, every birthday, and every February are never quite right. Their lack of closure hanging thick in the air. The sound of silence where Caitlin's laugh should be. Against all odds, stories like Caitlin's must be told and retold, time and time again. Even if they seem to go cold, even if there aren't any leads, even if solving them feels impossible with the persistent stretch of time, the names of these women matter. And a lot can happen as the seasons pass. People die, bargains expire, guilt consumes you, loose lips sink ships, or science catches up. But that can only happen if we keep sharing their faces and saying their names. Caitlin Brandy Potts. Sister. Daughter. Mother. Friend. Missing. Missed. And still coming home. <laughs>